Welcome to another chapter of The Book Show here on RTE Radio 1. I'm Rick O'Shea and I'm being joined by Africa O'Connell. Hello. We're talking plot twists a little bit later on, but we're going to be very careful about not revealing too much. Yes, we're going to absolutely flag the moments where you have to put your fingers in your ears. That's me warned and rightly so. But first... The Ballad of Lord Edward and Citizen Small is, according to its narrator, a ballad of fools and heroes. And maybe you can work out which is which. Well, maybe the author might be able to give us a clue or two as well as he's sitting opposite me now. Neil Jordan, you are very welcome to The Book Show. Hi, uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, You've taken one character about whom a lot is known and you've taken a character about whom almost nothing is known. Was that part of the attraction and trying to tell the story in the first place? Yeah, that was the the whole attraction, actually, (laughs) because I I never would have um, thought of writing any kind of fictionalised account of Lord Edward Fitzgerald's life or actually of Tony Small's life, you know, because I wouldn't have been. I wouldn't have been that interested in writing the former and that capable of writing the latter, really, you know. But th- I, I began to think then if uh, Tony Small was to write his account of Lord Edward's life, it could be really interesting, you know, and it could open up all sorts of really fascinating areas of inquiry about, you know, the Irish experience of rebellion against empire, the Irish experience under empire, the the perspective on somebody who is as privileged as Lord Edward Fitzgerald must have been and his journey from that level of privilege to the level, to the situation of a gorilla on the run, really, you know, and the kind of perplexity and the irony with which somebody who actually was enslaved, actually enslaved, would, would have viewed this entire journey, you know. That, and that's why I wrote the book, really, and I thought it would be, you know, just a fascinating perspective on this Irish experience that used to be familiar to everybody, but nowadays is not that familiar, you know. There was a certain amount of freedom in that, I presume, but I would also presume there's a certain amount of responsibility in telling the story about, about which, you know, n- nothing is really known about Tony Small. Nothing. Well, well, very little, you know. I mean, the, the, the only fact, I mean, apart from the facts that I found in the Tom Moore biography and the biography by Stella Tilliard, was a letter in the National Library, which is a begging letter, you know, and it's written in hand, you know, probably not Tony Small's hand because maybe he chose, maybe he had to use a scrivener, you know, to write that, write the letter. Maybe he had to use a scrivener to compose it. But uh, it's written in oddly contemporary language in a strange way, you know, and it doesn't use any of those uh, those linguistic devices that you find in all the slave narratives and stuff like that, you know. But it's actually a very heartbreaking letter, you know. It's asking for money. From, his, from the family of his former employers, you know, who were the family of Lord Edward themselves. And it was written to Lord Edward's uh, stepfather, a gentleman called Ogilvy, yeah, whom I, in the novel, for some reason, took a dislike to. <laughs> and I kind of allowed Tony Small to share that kind of rather circumspect attitude towards this man. Tell me a little bit about the, what must have been the, the fun of writing the huge dramatic scenes that, that there are in the book, the, the, the fleeing of Charleston, the, the jostling ships on the crowded quays in Dublin. That must have been, it must have been a fun part of the process, I, t- I take it. <laughs> it, it it's, it's great fun to research this stuff, you know. I mean, it's like extraordinary. But the problem with the, that kind of historical research is that you kind of need a voice. You need to simplify things in a way, you know. I mean, because if I was to write, for example, a fictionalised account of Lord Edward Fitzgerald's experience under, 
you know, during the period of the United Irishman, you know, there would there'd be a whole slew of characters I would have to deal with, one of them being Arthur O'Connor, perhaps the, another being Wolf Tone, you know, it would go on and on and on, and you'd get both confused and probably bored and irritated. But the fact that I had this, this absolutely kind of, you know, one-person perspective allowed me to cut through a lot of that, you know, and, and kind of made, it made those descriptions really fun for me as a writer. It's, it's interesting you, t- you talk about that. Were you conscious at any stage maybe of writing Tony Smallback into history? No, not at all. No, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not equipped to do that. I, I was conscious of writing Tony Small's account of Edward Fitzgerald, basically. Ser- seriously, as simple as that. And that's why I wrote the book, you know. Because uh, I, w- I wouldn't have attempted the, you know, a kind of an objective account of an African-American's experience, even if it was in Ireland, you know. How difficult was it to put words into his mouth to create his dialogue. Uh-huh. Well, well, that's the, that's the thing, you know, because uh, I basically took the presumption, okay, this character is going to learn the speech of the argot of common people in Dublin and what would have been the, you know, the kind of chatter of the servants in Leinster House, you know, and those through whom he would met these, you know. And I, I did a lot of study on 18th century Irish balladry and poetry and stuff like that. And there's an extraordinary trove of, I suppose nowadays you call them murder ballads, you know. They're all about uh, criminals, you know, awaiting execution, awaiting the kind of what they used to call the Kilmaine Minute and all that sort of stuff. So I made the presumption, whether it be justified or not, that his language would uh, delight in the same kind of language, you know. And he would have, he, if, if, if he approximated to any kind of speech, it would have been that kind of speech in a way, you know. You've mentioned Leinster House, the kind of the, the properties that the, the Fitzgerald family owned, they must have given you some form of inspiration. I mean, you've got Leinster House and, and Carton House, which still exist, and Frascati House, which which doesn't. Mm. Well, I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it, when you think of it? I mean, actually, it's it's kind of beyond comprehension that one family could have lived in what is now the Doyle, the National Museum, and the National the, <laughs> the National Gallery, the National Library, sorry. It's just extraordinary, you know, and the fact that at the time that was not even connected to the streets of Dublin, you know, it was in a series of fields outside. And that also their other house would have been Carton House, which is a magnificent dwelling, you know. So the level of wealth, I suppose you can only equate it to somebody like Jeff Bezos these days, you know, and the the kind of dependence on this ascendancy, this ascendancy must have had on a, you know, the vast bulk of people who perhaps didn't even share the same language, you know, or only marginally shared the same language at the time. It's, it's kind of extraordinary, really. I mean, I'd love to give a fuller account of that if I could, but, you know, I did choose Tony Small's perspective on that, those kind of anomalies and those paradoxes. Was it important to you that you wrote it as a ballad? To me it was, yeah, because... I love the ballad form, you know, and I love the idea of the ballad form. You know, there's 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 a kind of a <clears throat> there's a kind of a the story is told in the first verse. You know, it's expanded, expanded, expanded. You know, and then the last verse, and then there's a recitate. There's a kind of a recitative aspect to it. It's a sad verse sometimes, it's a happy verse. You know, that kind of thing. So it's a cool form to use. 
obviously class runs uh, all the way through this book and the nature of, of Lord Edward Fitzgerald's story as well. Was it interesting to think about the idea of, and as he does as a character himself, eventually about the privilege that he had and obviously that for most of his life he was probably completely unaware that he had that kind of privilege? Well, I'm sure he, he himself wouldn't have thought he was privileged because he was a younger son, wasn't he? You know, I mean, I mean, his destiny would have been the army, probably a lower position in the army or the church, as they called it then, you know. Because his elder brother, who was, could have been old enough to be his father, actually inherited the title and the dukedom. So the primogenitor thing ran very strong. And I'm sure the younger sons of these great families must have felt, had their own reasons for disenchantment. And maybe that was one of the reasons that Lord Edward took the journey he did, you know. You must have, uh, at, certainly at some point, correct me if I'm wrong, I wouldn't ask this. I would ask this of, of another author, but obviously one who is a filmmaker as well. While you're in the process of, of writing the sights and the sounds and the smells of Dublin in the 1780s and 1790s, and they do come across as being very cinematic on the mm. page, at some point does your thought then turn to what it would look like on the screen? No, no, because I was so glad not to be doing it as a movie because it would be, believe me, exhausting. You know, I mean, I did make Michael Collins, you know, and we did deal with Dublin of a different period. And for some strange reason, the city fathers gave us access to all sorts of streets and allowed us to recreate as much as we could of Dublin as it would have been around between 1916 and 1921. To try and recreate Dublin in the 1790s would be, I mean, perhaps if you could use make an entirely digital movie, you know, like uh, like The Mandalorian. It'd be you possible. could do it all with computers. Pardon? Yeah, I know, but you know how much money that would cost? I mean, and even the thought, no. of, it, even the thought <laughs> of it exhausts me. Let me put it that way. Um, so you've no interest yourself in turning it into into a miniseries or into a, um, into a there, big there screen are con- thing? There are conversations going on, yeah. It, it might, there might be a possible miniseries based on these characters, yeah. That, that would be interesting, I think. Maybe, maybe that would be possible to realise, you know, you know, well and authentically. Neil Jordan, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for talking to us on The Book Show. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Ballad of Lord Edward and Citizen Small by Neil Jordan is published by Lilliput Press. Not that we needed to mention his film career, but Neil Jordan wrote one of the big screen's most memorable and marketable plot twists of all time. And a successful twist can be a thing of beauty, but also an elaborate construction. But we as readers experience them in a different way and knowing they're there only adds to the anticipation. To talk about this, I'm joined by Afric O'Connell. Afric, we may as well start with, if that's what you want to call it, the science of the twist. Let's start with the science bit. Yeah, so... The way we're built means that we are anticipating all the time. It's absolutely human nature to try and predict what might happen next in any context, in loads of different contexts. But an effective storyteller knows that this is what we're trying to, trying to do all the time. We're trying to guess what comes next and they take advantage of this. They use that in constructing a really, really good twist. Like something, a book, any book that you can think of that has a really good twist will use things like red herrings to anchor your perceptions in different ways and skew you away from the eventual twist and everything that you thought might have been concrete is blown apart. Are you one of those people? Because I'm one of those people who, because I'm so terrible at guessing anything that can be defined as a twist, I just sit back and go, look, whatever happens, happens. I can't. Rick, I have a really um, weird talent, actually, for guessing twists. When I know, in fairness, it is only when I know that there is a twist in a book that I know is going to happen. I read um, The Secret Scripture 
a lot of years ago at this stage and my mom had read it first and she said to me you're not going to believe what happens in this book and so I started reading the secret scripture immediately anticipating that something huge was going to happen in this narrative and I correctly predicted what the twist was in the secret scripture from really early on she couldn't believe it but unfortunately I'm not the genius that I make myself out to be I'm just I was aware that something was going to happen so I was putting things together in a different way than if I had come to a cold this leads me into something which is, is quite important and it's a major bone of contention in the book club that I run on Facebook as uh-huh. well. Being told there's a twist yeah. immediately changes the nature of you yeah. reading a book and sometimes in and of itself can be a spoiler. That's true. Yeah, that's true. It definitely does change the way you read a book if you know that there is something huge coming. Like like with that, and I was able to predict, I certainly wouldn't have been able to predict what happened in Sebastian Barry's novel if I had come to it cold. But... I don't think that it necessarily ruins it. I think it means uh, you read it in a different way for sure because you're anticipating, you're looking for clues nearly from the very beginning. But I don't know if I would call it certainly changes your experience. I don't know if it changes it for the worse, if you know what I mean. There are definitely people who, who do this as well, and I'm not one of them, but there are people who I know find this immensely rewarding. The idea of rereading one of those books that has one of those incredible twists in it, yeah. and instead you then start to see the breadcrumbs from the beginning. A huge amount of the pleasure that comes from it is getting to the last page, going back back to the beginning and using everything you've learned to kind of put things together in a way that maybe you hadn't read before. I read Life of Pi immediately again after I had read it the first time and it was like reading a completely different book. It was amazing. Okay, you've picked out some of your, your favourite plot yeah. twists. This is the moment where which, if you're, if you're listening to us live on the radio on a Sunday night, just, just be ready with the volume button in case we mention a book that you're just about yeah. to read. Or if you're listening to us on podcast, finger on the pause. Uh, Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro. One of the great twists, I read it many, many years ago and was, it's that book, uh, Never Let Me Go, is proof that not all great twists have to come at the end of the story. The twist comes very, very early on and it is jaw-dropping. It's so, so good. And I would highly recommend it to anyone. You've mentioned more than once Jan Martel's The Life of Pi. Yes, which I adored at the time. It's funny, a lot of people who read it at the same time as me didn't love it as much as I did. I adored it. Read it twice. 16-year-old boy in uh, India ends up on a lifeboat with a tiger. That's basically all you need to know. And you've mentioned as well Sebastian Barry's The Secret Scripture. One of my all-time favourites as well. A lady has been a patient in a psychiatric hospital in Roscommon for 50 years and she is writing her own autobiography and it's the most gorgeous prose it's it's really empathetic it's uh it'll break your heart it's beautiful I would like to think we've been remarkably gentle about those those yes. spoilers and I don't think we're going to get into trouble Africa Connell thanks a million for joining me on the book show thanks for having me Now it's time to once again match a book club with an author. Here's Kira Farrell to tell us about the Fingal Library's online book club. We set up the online book club in September 2020 when we knew that libraries would have to close their doors yet again. We contacted our traditional book clubs who had always met in the libraries and asked them to move online with us. Well, we were delighted with the response and we now have 10 members of the online book club who meet on the third Wednesday of the month on MS Teams. 
we look forward to our lively discussions about our monthly book club choice as well as other books we're reading and enjoying at the time. We took part in the fantastic Ireland Reads campaign. We welcomed Liz Nugent to the book club for our March meeting on St. Patrick's Day after reading her book, Our Little Groaties. We're delighted to be here today to talk to Ronan about his beautiful book, Leonard and Hungry Paul. And we encourage all book clubs to read the book. It is available on BorrowBox with your library card for free as an e-book and an e-audio. This week's book choice, it's a very timely one. It is Leonard and Hungry Paul by Ronan Hessian and from the Fingal Library's online book club with Gronje Ikevonig to set the scene for us. Never was gentleness and kindness more important. Never did the little things matter so much. Ronan Hessian's Leonard and Hungry Paul is a feast of the ordinary, full of ordinary people doing ordinary things, but it is far from ordinary in its portrayal of how important all this is. Happy families, living day to day, relationships where kindness and gentleness are the hallmarks. Leonard and Paul see the word through their own prism. They play board games. They use humour and silence to navigate modern life. It's a heartwarming, life-affirming, eye-opening read with characters that mirror people we might dismiss or ignore or label in real life. Enjoy the communal healing, no spoiler alert, and the quiet victory of the quiet man and woman we all know in our lives. Now I'm joined by the author of Leonard and Hungry Paul, Ronan Hessian. Ronan, how are you? I'm great, thanks Rick. Thanks for having me on. Not at all. uh, What is it like being selected for for one Dublin One book? Because for for both a, a debut author and for a book that came out on a relatively speaking small press, this is absolutely huge. Yeah, it's it's a huge honour and it's a it's a big deal. I I've lived in Dublin all my life. You know, all my family are here, uh, and I wrote the book as a very sort of quiet project, late at night at my kitchen table. I never really thought it would be become a big a big um get a big readership, and I never thought it would be picked up for something like one Dublin one book. So the idea that it's being read across the city for the month is really exciting. You've described Leonard and Hungry Paul before as a celebration of quiet and kind people. And we don't really celebrate those characters as a rule, do we? No, and I think that's part of the appeal of the book, is that these are people that we all know. They're people that we all sort of value in our lives, but they tend not to feature in novels and they tend not to feature in sort of TV programmes or movies. So when I started sort of to think about this and to notice this before I even began writing, I began to understand how important they are in society and the contribution people like that have made to my own life and the influence they've had on me. So the more I wrote about them, the more I tried to understand them. Uh, and I, it's amazing that since the book has come out that the world is full of these people and certainly full of people who appreciate them. OK, we should crack on. We're going to take the first question now from the Fingal Library's online book club. Here's Martin Keneally. Hi Ronan. In the book you write, Peter hadn't written anything down yet for his speech, but he had allowed a healthy collection of ideas to build up over the preceding weeks. Is this something you also do as a writer and do you keep a notebook of your ideas? I don't keep a notebook uh, and I don't generally work from notes. I like to have the ideas just germinate around inside me. And I could carry them around for potentially years where they're somewhere in the back of my mind. Uh, And then when I come to write, I like the freedom of just swimming around in my imagination. 
So if I feel if I'm working from notes that I'm not really in that zone, that I'm more in the zone of just writing and, you know, filling the page. Whereas if I just kind of have that freedom just to work sort of with some degree of spontaneity, I'll have a general outline of what I want to do. But I like just to sort of feel that I'm in the zone and just write from that sort of space. I think you're one of the few authors I've ever interviewed who's ever said that. I mean, almost everybody has large stashes of notebooks. Uh, question number two comes from Margaret Slyne. Some of my favourite scenes were the father-daughter moments between Grace and Peter. I was wondering, do you have your own favourite scenes from the book? And secondly, which characters did you enjoy writing dialogue for the most? Thank you very much. Well, the first thing I'll say is that uh, I'll give you a million points out of 10 for picking those scenes. The the scene between uh, Grace and Peter, particularly late on in the book before Grace's wedding, is a really important scene. And I've been talking about this book for two years and it's the first time anyone's mentioned it. So I'm really delighted, obviously a very um, perceptive reader, because it explains so much about Grace, uh, who who sometimes gets misunderstood as a sort of pushy sister or bridezilla. But you see in those discussions that she's not. She's actually someone who's simply trying to please other people and someone who feels kind of burdened by that. So I agree, that's one of my favourite scenes and I'm really glad it was spotted by, by the book group. I also like the the scene which gave the idea for the cover where Peter and Helen, so this is Hungry Paul's parents, uh, are. it's a scene from early in their marriage where Peter reflects on when they were at an aquarium in Monterey and Helen looks at the fish in front of her and she picks the sunfish as her favourite. Now, if you've ever seen a sunfish, they're kind of a big sort of lumbering, vacant looking fish. Uh, And Peter could see straight away that the reason why she chose the sunfish was because she she would be afraid that nobody else would love it. And it would sort of pain her beautiful heart to think that something could go through life unloved. And in that sense, Hungry Paul is, is also her sunfish. So she cares about him extra for feeling that other people might not appreciate him. So I think that's a scene when we were looking at a cover for the book and my publisher gave me the quite difficult homework of saying sleep on it come back to me and tell me an image that sums up the book that's the scene that came to me so that that's a real favorite for me and it is i think an extraordinary cover and one of those ones that would have made people pick up the book where they might not otherwise have, have done so for the third question from fingal here's kira once again we know as a reader that you are a huge fan of translated fiction can you tell us whether leonard and hungry paul will be translated into other languages and if so what countries will it be released in? Also, if you had the option to travel to any country for a book launch, where would it be? Well, uh, the uh, there's a publisher in Italy who's just picked up Leonard and Hungry Paul. Uh, so Calatore uh, Press, they're going to publish it there, I think, next year, uh, which I'm really interested in. I did an interview with the Italian community in Dublin recently, and the interviewer was saying, they think it'll be a very get a very interesting reaction there because it's a very topical issue in Italy, the idea of people staying at home longer and living with their parents right into their 30s. So she thought it would be a very uh, timely book there. I think anyone who knows me um, would know that I love uh, Japanese literature uh, and if it could be translated somewhere or I could do a book launch somewhere, I would love to see it made available in, in Japanese and it would give me a chance I've been plodding away on Duolingo for the past year on Japanese so it would give me a chance to, to use my sort of pidgin Japanese so that would be ideal but there, there are a few other discussions going on I think one of the disruptions of Covid has been that the normal uh, you know book 
uh, sort of festivals, the sort of Frankfurt Festival and so on, which is where all the international deals get done. They've been suspended. So there's a bit of a delay on that front. But I, I feel patient about it and I'm hopeful that it will it will be translated. And I, and I would really love to work with translators uh, on getting the book into other languages. And our final question is from Maeve Brannigan. You made a lovely comment about Baldoy Library in the acknowledgements for Leonard and Hungry Paul. You have said that you used to visit the library after a swim when you were younger. What are your favourite things about public libraries? Well, I think certainly when I was younger, I think the library was the first place where I felt I was being treated like a grown-up. You know, if you're a sort of 12 or 13-year-old boy uh, on the north side of Dublin, you know, and you wear tracksuits and runners and you go into a clothes shop, immediately the security guards click into the radios on their lapel. But if you go into a library, you're treated like everyone else. They actually let you take the books away and trust you to bring them back. And I liked that sort of sense of being treated as a responsible person there. And I, I wanted to live up to it. As an adult, I love going out with my kids and I love, I use the libraries regularly. There's a brilliant service now in Ireland where uh, any book anywhere in the country, you can order it online and pick it up from your library. Uh, and it means that even books from obscure, small, independent presses from all around the world are readily accessible. I love that feature. And I, I love the, the sort of the fact that the people have got to know me over time in Bald Oil. Like I remember going in before and I'd ordered uh, a book by Japanese writer Banana Yoshimoto. And when I went to pick it up, it turned out I'd organised, I'd ordered the Japanese edition. But the librarian, not to be outdone, said, well, look, we also have a a CD set where you can teach yourself Japanese if that's of any interest. So so they're, they're not easily discouraged in terms of helping the people who go in. And I like that sort of sense. They're very welcoming places. They have everyone in the community uses them. Uh, and certainly my I'm published by a UK publisher and the people in the UK system can't believe how great our library system is, that it's open, it's free, there are no fines, you can order books anywhere uh, and we're investing in it all the time. So I think, I think they're a real... Uh, part of our book culture and a very important part of it. Ronan Hessian, thanks a million for talking to us on The Book Show. Thanks so much, Rick. Leonard and Hungry Paul by Ronan Hessian is published by Blue Moose and is the one Dublin, one book choice for 2021. I'm talking to Ronan and crime author Alex Barkley online this coming Wednesday night about characters that are nice and nasty. For more information about the One Dublin, One Book initiative and to find out about all of the events, you can check out the programme on onedublinonebook.ie. And as ever, all of those events are available to view online anywhere and not just in the capital. Thanks to Ronan and to the Fingal Library's online book club for the questions. If you'd like to volunteer your book group to take part in a future episode, you can drop us a line to bookshow at rte.ie. And that's it for the book show this week on RTE Radio 1, the podcast available wherever you find yours. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at bookshowrte. I'll talk to you again next week. And don't forget to check with your local bookshop or library for any of the books featured on the programme.